This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's open in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 is where we will be together. The best stories have characters that we root for, trials that must be overcome, lessons to be learned, but there is hope at the end. And I would challenge you even to think of a story that you like that doesn't have that outline in some shape or form. You're rooting for a character. There's something that must be overcome. They have to learn and grow in some way. And the the reason we're drawn to an arc like that is because we realize that perfection is boring. And even more than boring perfection, perfection's imaginary. Real people are flawed. Change and growth are part of everyone's experience in the actual world. And that's why we love stories that give us an imperfect hero, dire circumstances, and overcoming with hope, a ray of light, because that's life. It always has been. And when we Read the Bible. It's one of the ways that we know it's true. The Bible is filled with real people living in the real world. We're reading in it the redemptive plan of God, yes, but we're also reading in it the history of humanity. God achieved what he achieved in Christ for redemption By using real people. He did this in our past so that we could have a future. And so this is what you are constantly getting in the Bible. You're getting someone who's called by God, but always, always they need work. He needs to, to take them from where they are on their own through process to where he leads them to on the other side. So many Bible stories go like this. On the surface, from a human perspective, it seems like in the story we're being told one story. But as we read the Bible, every once in a while, the the curtain is pulled back a little bit, and there is light. There's a reason for hope. You can see, sometimes on full display, sometimes just a little bit, the plans and purposes of God. And when we open Exodus, that's what we find. We're really being told two stories at the same time. One story is it's bleak. There has been 400 years of silence from God. There's suffering and slavery. 
The question that's being asked is what happened to the promise that God made to his people, these people? But already in chapter one, the curtain gets lifted back a little bit. We're shown that God is there. He's seen in in certain ways. In chapter 2, the the story, what we're going to read, takes a big step forward. Now, in, in the first part of the chapter that we covered last week, a baby is born. And right away, we're clued in that this is a special boy. His parents see something about him. And then we're told, miraculously, that under threat, he survives. He should have been killed, but he doesn't just live. He's made royalty. And we're going to read this in in just a minute, but before we do that, what I want to draw out for you is a couple of things to sort of key in on as we pick the story up in chapter 2. So first, we're immediately going to be given a hint that this man has a special purpose. He's unsettled in his soul a little bit, and something in him is awakened. So look for that. The second thing I want you to look for is pay attention what happens through his failure. He senses there is something he must do. The way that we would say it is God is calling him to something. But he first blows it spectacularly. And it could have been the end of the story, but it's not. And so we're asking the question, why is all of this part of God's plan? So I'm going to read all the way from 2, starting at verse 11, through uh, the end of 25. 11 to 25. And and what I want you to pay attention here is is we're into Exodus. I've called this two stories. Is this working? My clicker's not working. Could you go to the next slide, Piper? Is it up there? Tim, could you go back and help while I start reading? There we go. All right, we're going. We're going. Uh, If you have your Bible, Exodus 2, verse 11 We're going to pick it up from there. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid 
and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Here is what I am hoping you will see in these verses. Moses is to become the great liberator of God's people. God will use him mightily. But first, on the way to that, even in order to prepare him for that, he has to fail. He has to feel lost, and he has to learn to yield to God. So did you get that? That's what we're looking at. God's hand is on him. And I want us to see precisely that because God's hand was on him, he needed to be humbled in failure. He needed to learn to trust God and wait on him. And especially what Moses needed to come to see was that what Moses' people really needed was the Lord. We will see each one of these in a different place. There are, so to speak, three locations in these verses. One is Egypt. Another is called Midian. And the third is everywhere. In each of these places, God does something that only he can do. And as the verses go on, there is a progression where the plans of God become more and more evident. And so in order to follow along, I want you to know, I I was asked by a few members this past week if I would consider incorporating a simple outline and just a few main points in writing on the screen and on a note sheet. So I used to do this. Uh, I got away from it for some good reasons that I had, but I'm happy to do this if it works for people and it's helpful to you. Uh, And so if there's a chance that it could be used, I want to do that. In general, 
here's how I think your setup should look. I think you should have a Bible open on your lap. If you didn't bring one, there's one in the rack in front of you. I want you to read the Bible for yourself. I can read it to you. It's so much better if you read it for yourself. So Bible open on your lap. Have that note sheet with you if it's helpful and a pen to, to fill in some blanks of just some big main points, some, some takeaways that I hope that you have. I'm going to try the remote one more time. If it doesn't work, we'll see. All right, I'm not getting it. Piper, would you go to the next slide? So verses 11 to 14, Moses in Egypt. So verse 11 starts where Moses had grown up. There is a gap in the story now almost to the span of my entire life from what, where we left in verse 10 to where we are now. And here's how we know that Moses is special. He was born he was hidden for three months in a, in a desperate attempt to keep him from being murdered by Pharaoh. His mom puts him in a basket and sets that basket to float down a river. I'm assuming that she did that all the while pleading for deliverance for this little boy. And whether she prayed or not, then like I said, that's only an assumption that she did. God did deliver him in a remarkable way. Uh, instead of being killed like Pharaoh ordered, he adopted him into his family. Pharaoh, uh, Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into his family. He's returned to his mother to raise him. And then when he's old enough, he's, he's brought into Pharaoh's house. Again, as a member of the family. No longer one of the foreign people dwelling in the land, a, a member of the family. And, and if, if that is not a display of the good providence of God, I don't know what to lay before you. So that's what happened up to verse 10. Now fast forward to verse 11 where Moses has grown up and he feels compelled to go out and, and see the people of his birth that he was adopted out of. And if you look in the New Testament, Acts 7.23 tells us that Moses is 40 years old when this happens. So it's been a long time. He's a baby. Fast forward till he's 40. And when he sees one of the Israelites being beaten, he gets angry and he wants justice. Now here's the big problem, big problem. He doesn't seek godly justice. He takes matters into his own hands. He murders the Egyptian and then he covers up the crime. Acts 7.25 says that he assumed when he did this that his people would not only appreciate what he'd done for them, but they would see it as the beginning of their salvation. That's not how they see it. Why didn't, why didn't they see it that way? Why did they say, what, what are you going to murder us like you murdered that Egyptian, you big murderer? Why didn't they see it that way? I think there's, there's two reasons. Number one, it wasn't God's plan to do it that way. That's not how God was going to free his people by Moses killing one Egyptian at a time. Second, it wasn't yet God's time. It wasn't God's plan, and it wasn't yet God's time. Moses would lead. The, the, the truth is, and you'll see this, eventually, many, many Egyptians are going to die. But not until the Lord was in it. It wasn't right until it was God's plan at God's time. And Moses had to learn to see it this way. Let's go to this first main point on the screen. Next slide. 
when we take matters into our own hands, even with good intentions, our plans will often fail because they lack the presence of God. There should be a slide piper with blanks on it that said just that. There you go. For Christians, uh, what makes this a good plan ultimately is not the vision or the details or the execution. It's whether God is in it or not. That's what makes a good plan. Not a vision for a plan, not the details of a plan, not the execution of a plan, but whether God is in it will decide whether it's a good plan. So on the flip side, when you are defining success, it's not whether you hit it big, make a lot of money, even if things work out the way you are hoping. What makes a plan success is whether or not you were faithful to follow God. So uh, two quick stories that that go back to back. Uh, One where I got ahead of God and one where God's faithfulness uh, to me was the only way I could be sure that I was on the right track. So one where I get it wrong, one where, uh, by God's grace, I, I think I did the right thing. So when I was in my mid-20s, I was filled with a, a lot of hubris about what I could do for the kingdom of God. You kind of get how I worded that, what I could do for the kingdom of God. And so I, I went to the pastor that I was serving under at the time, and I told him, you know, I need to go someplace where I can be preaching all the time. He said, well, I think that's your calling. I think you're talented. I think you're gifted. But I think you need a couple more years to learn. And I said, all right, thanks, but I think I'm ready. Now, he could have said, this is what he could have said. He could have said, okay, I, I can't have you have one foot here and one foot someplace else out the door, try, you know, trying to go someplace else. So now that I kind of know this, you've got you know, three months, four months, five months, six months to find something. But after that, I, I've got to let you go and you've got to be on your own. He could have done that. Graciously, he didn't because it took a long time. I, uh, I thought right away, in fact, there was this church that I was going to go to in San Jose, California. Uh, kind of that was all set up, and at the last minute, they decided to go in a different direction. And then I just kind of wandered for two years. I mean, I didn't get nibbles. I didn't get hits. I didn't get anything for two years. He told me, I think you need a couple of years. I didn't get anything for two years. Uh, I was putting a lot of time into that search. It was taking a lot of time away from ministry, and it was only, I can look back and I can see this now, it was only when I decided to dig in where I was at, serve God faithfully there, just decide that I was going to learn to wait on the Lord, that I actually got an email from somebody at this church. And I think God was in that. So here's the second story. That's the one where I failed. Here's the second story. Uh, We felt so strongly when we came here that this was what God wanted to do with our lives and in the lives of this congregation. So Holly and I moved our family across the country, thousand miles, basically knowing no one. But because God was in it, we were confident. Uh, We prayed about it. We asked our family and friends to pray about it. The, The church here was praying about it. And all of us, felt like it was God's will. And then two months, from what I just said, we moved a thousand miles from anybody we knew. Two months after we got here, uh, my wife began experiencing 
a ton of anxiety to the point that it put her in the hospital for 12 days, probably the worst 12 days of our lives. Uh, Once she came home, there was six months of absolutely debilitating depression. And when I say debilitating depression, I mean barely could function day-to-day depression. After that, after that six months, it was ups and downs for two, three years before we got any kind of level. Maybe three years after, just ups and downs, ups and downs. I was, I was at the point of, of privately praying about, thinking about moving back. I just didn't think we were going to be able to do this. I didn't want to do that. I knew that that would devastate Holly. Holly didn't, I knew Holly didn't want to do that, but I was so lost. I didn't know what to do. Uh, The only things that kept us here were I asked two friends who I trust a lot, and I said, I don't want to leave, but I don't know what else to do. What do you think? And both of them, independently of one another, came back to me and said, you know what? You prayed about coming here. Don't feel like God wants you to leave. I just think you need to trust God and wait. That and God doing something just unexpected with our family and praise his name that he did because the right thing to do was to trust him. So I did. I just learned, I learned in that time to wait and trust him. But I had to learn that. So if you haven't learned that yet, Christians, we need to learn to trust and to wait on God. And then we all need to keep relearning it. So you haven't learned that yet. You're, not, you're never going to be able to be a Christian unless you learn to trust and wait on God. And then we need to, Christians, we need to keep relearning that. And this brings us to our second set of verses. So next slide, Moses in Midian. Moses in Midian, verses 15 to 22. So Moses had to go to Midian to learn to let God work. Uh, How does that happen? Uh, For one thing, he sees God work where he learns from the past. If you're going to learn to let God work, you have to learn to look back with spiritual eyes toward the past. So look at the end of verse 15. He flees to Midian, and he sits down by a well. So first thing to know, if you are an Israelite, you know what came before this. Genesis comes before this. Genesis through Deuteronomy are one big story told in five parts. And to say Moses sat down at a well is a very specific detail. And when there's a very specific detail in the Bible, you need to ask why is something so specific being told to us. Here's the reason. The promise of God was given to a man named Abraham. It started with him, and it was the promise of a family that would bless the world. From Abraham, it was passed to his son Isaac. From Isaac, it was passed to his son Jacob. So Abraham has a son. His son has a family of his own. He carries on the promise. Jacob has a family of his own, and he carries on the promise. Both Isaac and Jacob, so the first two generations of the covenant, 
started their families, that God would carry on the promise through by sitting down near wells where they met the women that would eventually become their wives. Their family started when they sat down by wells. And so when God sits Moses down by a well, and when Exodus says he sat down by a well, if you know Genesis, which anybody reading this in the original audience would have, they're immediately going to see a connection between the line of promise and what's happening now to Moses. He and his wife, and they know this, this is the clue, are going to be important like the people before them who sat down by wells, met their wives, are going to be important. The second thing that we see when he gets to Midian is what he does and what he does not do. So these women are harassed by some shepherds, unruly group who are just there to push them out of the way, maybe even to cause trouble for them, maybe even to be violent with them, and they need help. They need a rescuer. And Moses steps into the role, which is what he does. It's what he wanted to do in Egypt, but this time, I want you to see that he does it the right way. Look at verse 18. Moses saved them, and then he did what? He helped them water their flock. So he steps in, he delivers them, but he doesn't murder the shepherds. He steps in and he serves these women humbly, and then he helps them do their work. And now, based on what he's learned, he can be rewarded. So this is your second set of blanks that'll be on the screen. When we learn to trust God and wait on him and see things from his perspective, we are in a prime position for him to use us. That's when we're ready for God to use us. We need to learn to trust him, wait on him, see things from his perspective. Two books, more than any of the other in all the Bible, that talk about waiting on the Lord are the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah. And it makes sense because there are many Psalms that are written by David who would be king and was told he was going to be king as a young boy, but he had to wait quite a long time. He was often harassed. His life was in danger because of that promise from God. So it makes sense that he'd write a lot about learning to trust God and wait on him. Isaiah is a prophet who is preparing people for a time that they will be in exile. And they're going to need to learn to keep their faith in God. And so Isaiah talks a lot about learning to trust God when you can't quite see what he's doing. And there's a common theme that runs through both of those places. Psalm and Isaiah. And instructing us what it means to wait on the Lord. So if you want to know, how do I wait on the Lord? Let me just give you at least these two things. And I draw them out of being common to to both the Psalms and Isaiah. Uh, First, you wait on the Lord by by continuing to keep his ways. Wait on the Lord by continuing to keep his ways. If you trust God, if you want his perspective, you have to follow him and live your life under him. You can't go your own way. You can't say you're waiting for the Lord if you're going the way that you want to go and not asking him what he wants. And a second way that we wait on the Lord 
is not to get nervous when we see others prospering while we're waiting. Both the Psalms and Isaiah talk about seeing the ways of the wicked, the ways of the evil triumph and prosper. And the point is, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't get nervous that you're falling behind. Trust the Lord that he will vindicate you and make things right. Even if things don't seem like they're going well from your perspective, waiting on the Lord means trusting him to work in his time. So walk in his ways and don't get nervous that you're falling behind, that others are prospering where you're not. It's a natural temptation for us, isn't it? See people getting ahead and where they're waiting. And so we begin to, you know, to think, I need to do something. I, got, I, I have to take action. You know, I'm never going to get ahead at work unless I play the game like the other people are playing the game. If I don't ride my kids harder, how are they ever going to achieve all that I want them to achieve in life? We can even spiritualize not waiting on the Lord. You know, if, if we would only do things like this church is doing it, we'd have more people or better facilities or, you know, bigger platform. Never mind if, you know, they've sacrificed their unity and their calling to be a pillar of the truth and they're focused to shepherd hurting people to do those things. The end doesn't always justify the means with God. The end is justified by learning to walk in his ways and keep our vision fixed on him. Learn that. Third place, verses 23 to 25, God everywhere. In one sense, it's back in Egypt and what's happening there, but let's not forget that God is still in Midian. Next week, we're going to see a lot more of God's presence in Midian. He's also everywhere else in all of his creation. So when it says in verse 24 that he remembered his covenant with his people, that's not to say he once forgot it. It slipped his mind. It means that the timing has now come. And we should see what precedes it. Prayer. God heard the prayer of his people. And, and I think we're meant to see here the people learning the same things that Moses had to learn. Moses isn't the only one learning to wait and trust the Lord. Moses isn't the only one learning to see from God's perspective. Verse 23 says that more time passed and the Pharaoh died and still there was slavery. So then the people cried out to God. They had to learn to hope that time would not take care of their need. They couldn't just keep hoping that next, the next thing would be better for them. They had to pray. They had to learn to, to understand that a change in the political realm was not what they needed. They didn't need a new leader. Their crying out to God signified that they had to come, that they'd finally come to a place where they realized, realized what their true need is for their God. Nothing else in the world can give them what they need. And they'll keep learning this. 
Even when their prayers are answered, there's more prayers to be prayed. So, you know, kind of spoiler alert for Exodus. Moses will come. He will stand up to Pharaoh. He will deliver them. But even after that, they will still need more. They still need to learn to trust God. And they'll still fail massively along the way. The same is true for us. So here's the last big point that I want you to get. Moses became a great servant of God. An answer even to their prayers. But ultimately what we need is the Lord himself. Moses was a prince. We need a king. Now the people are going to learn this in due course. They're going to be given the law of God. They're eventually going to be led into the land that God promised to them. They will have what they want. They will have what they actually think they need. But they will learn in time that land, the promised land, being liberated from Egypt, that's still not enough. What they truly need is a way for their sins to be forgiven and for their relationship with God to be restored. You can live in a nice place, have nice things, and have a good setup. But you're still under sin. You still bear the weight of sin, and you still don't have a restored relationship with God. The people don't just need liberation from slavery. We don't just need an easy life. We need redemption. We still need that today. And it's only through Jesus Christ that it can come. When we talk about learning to trust God and seeing things from his perspective, I think of Hebrews 12.2. I think, well, how do we do that? Well, Hebrews 12.2 tells us how. It says that Jesus, who's both the founder and the fulfiller, the, the perfecter of our faith, he is that way because he learned to look only at God. All the while knowing that while he looked at God, while he walked in the way of God, it would mean his suffering on the cross because he had to take the place of sinners. And that verse says that after defeating the shame of sin on the cross, he went to heaven and sat down next to God the Father. He went to heaven and sat down on the throne because that's where kings sit. One more thing I want you to see. Jesus Christ is the king we need. You see this. Compare this to Moses. Jesus did not, this is how he liberates. Get this, this is so good. Jesus did not take matters into his own hands and kill. He willingly gave himself up in our place to be killed. Remember when it says that Moses learned that he, through being a sojourner in a foreign land, Jesus left heaven to sojourn in a foreign land, but not because he was driven out of his original home by fear or because he had had done wrong and needed to go into exile. Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth, sojourns here because of love. 
not because he messed up, not because he got ahead of God. And Jesus is the God who knows us, who's heard our cry, and that's why he's come in the flesh. It's not a mistake that the next time God goes silent for hundreds of years is right before Jesus comes. He's the better Moses. He's the king we need. And if he's not your hope, he needs to be. You will always be left wanting if your hope is in something else. If your faith is not in him, you need to put it there. Otherwise, you can't live. Church, we have to learn to trust God. Learn to wait for him, look only at him. Here's how that's done. It's done by recognizing that we will never do it on our own. When I say we have to wait and trust God, the way to do that isn't by saying, okay, I will try to get way more patient and I will try to get way more trusting. The way to do that is to recognize that only Jesus perfectly trusts God Only he waits only for him. And only Christ can see the way that God does. And so the way to learn to trust God ultimately, the only way that we're ever going to fully wait on him is by putting our faith in Jesus. It's always about Jesus. The grace is that we're promised that when we believe in Jesus, his righteous work his perfect trust in God, his waiting on God, his following through perfectly on the plans of God, that's given to us. So how are we going to fully commit ourselves to God? By giving ourselves entirely to Jesus. That's how we do it. We give ourselves entirely to him. He is our great liberator. He is our great rescuer. He is the redeemer that we need. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus trusted you, that Jesus perfectly waited on you. And as God in the flesh, he had the vision to see things that on, only the, the way that only you can. And so we believe, we want to believe in him. We put our faith and our hope in him. For those of us who are not fully hoping in him, break down whatever barriers are left in whatever way is necessary. And for those that are, may we be strengthened to look upon him again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.